Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Holly Murphy. Dr. Murphy went to school at the University of Sullivan College of Pharmacy down in Kentucky. She specializes in HIV and HIV uh, awareness and protection. Dr. Murphy, can you tell us a little bit something about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me on the show, first and foremost. But yes, I am an HIV specialist. I graduated in 2013 from Sullivan University with my PharmD. I think it's really interesting to hear how people end up in their specialties. And being an HIV specialist, I feel like I got here in kind of a, a, a roundabout way. I had always planned on being a community pharmacist and moving back home and opening up my own community pharmacy. But now I am working as an ambulatory care HIV specialist. When I was in pharmacy school, I actually got a needle stick while I was out at a health fair um, doing diabetes testing. And from there, it kind of developed into this passion for HIV care after I went in for my follow-up testing after that potential exposure. And I became very, very passionate about it because the only place that I was able to find HIV testing for free as a student was actually through Planned Parenthood. When I went into this Planned Parenthood, I had a little bit of a questionable experience. I felt like I was, you know, looked down upon because I was there asking for an HIV test and it was very stigmatized. It made me really wonder what people who might have had some type of other risky exposure, you know, maybe they were a victim of sexual assault, maybe they had a condom break or, you know, they were just coming in for routine testing. You know, how did they feel coming in for that kind of stuff? So after that, I learned about the drugs and I had a really great experience at an HIV clinic um, in Kentucky. I decided to pursue residency training. So my PGY-1 um, training is actually in community pharmacy where I had the opportunity to work with HIV specialists in um, Kentucky as well in more of a community setting versus a clinical setting. And I was able to get actively involved within the HIV community um, in Louisville and actually speak to people who are consumers of the HIV services in the city. And then after that, I went on to complete my PGY2 in HIV pharmacotherapy here in Buffalo. It has just been a really, really rewarding experience. So I'm really excited to talk about PrEP today. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I didn't realize you had a needle stick. I've known you for, since you were in college, and I didn't I didn't know that's what kind of spurred your passion about HIV. That's pretty interesting, and probably a real life thing for many of the listeners who are also pharmacists or healthcare providers of this podcast. So I'm sorry you had to go through that, but it's also pretty eye opening that that's what make, brought this to your passion. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I get questions from other healthcare providers on needle stick happenings all the time. So um, it's just something that allows me to share my experiences and help reassure people that, you know, this ha does happen and it's not out of the ordinary, just as long as you follow the right protocols, everything ends up being okay. It's ironic because I actually made my very first clinical decision on myself. So deciding whether or not I was going to go on post-exposure prophylaxis and that kind of thing um, was kind of an interesting experience to say the least. Gotcha. Hey, what year did you graduate from Sullivan again? I forgot to mention that just so people get a gist of how fresh or how long you've been in the field. Um, 2013. Okay, 2013. So you've been out now for a solid six plus years. So that's great. That's a lot of experience yeah. under your belt, especially with the residency yeah. in, in this field. So the reason I brought you on here today, in recent weeks, California passed a PrEP and PEP treatment available without prescription. 
really focusing. So obviously the pharmacists are the ones who dispense this. Uh, there's a few rules on it, like it can only be dispensed for 60 days before a prescription is needed. And the patients also show also must show proof that they've been tested for HIV and are negative. I thought you were one of the best people I know that could speak on this because of your residency training and what you do for a living with HIV. What are your thoughts on California making essentially PrEP and PEP over-the-counter plus? I will tell you that there I have a couple of different thoughts. My immediate first thought was, oh my gosh, this is fantastic because as an HIV specialist, I'm always looking for ways to help expand access to prevention methods, whether that is, you know, finding free testing services or being able to provide patients with, you know, free barrier methods like female condoms, male condoms, um, and those sorts of things, or even um, PrEP, because I feel like a lot of these things are very underutilized for a multitude of reasons, which I'm sure that we're going to get into. But then on the other hand, as a pharmacist that has a significant amount of community and dispensing training, because I, I worked in community for the majority of my time in school, I have, a, I have some, some concerns, some reservations about what's going to happen with, you know, workload balancing. We already are talking about immunizations and MTM and things like that. How is this going to fit into our day-to-day routine? And how are we going to, you know, make sure that we are providing these patients with the best care possible? Because Sometimes people aren't necessarily as comfortable with PrEP or HIV care as a general topic, just because it's kind of one of those taboo things. You know, I think that there are lots of different feelings about this specific law coming out, but for the profession as a whole and as a pharmacist, I think that this is definitely a step in the right direction, and I'm really, really excited about it. Okay, great. Yeah, I I work in retail like you do, or you have, but I also work in pharmacy that specializes in HIV as like a local hub for it. And at any given time, we have almost a quarter million dollars of HIV drugs sitting on our shelves. And it's really not that many drugs because they're so expensive. But we do have to go through a lot of those counseling sessions and discussions and ask some of those questions of patients. And patients can be very sensitive to it, like you mentioned, which is a, a great call out to anything we can do to expand this type of care over a sensitive subject and without putting the burden on them, I feel like it's a great thing. So should pharmacists be able to test people for HIV then, since that is one of the requirements here at least? Yeah, so I've actually had conversations about this particular question with some peers in the past. And, you know, we have run into situations where we're not only just seeing pharmacists necessarily being uncomfortable talking about safe sex practices or you know, sexual health wellness. But we're also starting to see conversations about these same topics um, not being approached by our physician counterparts. So it's kind of like a whole um, barrier across healthcare where people just don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about this kind of stuff. But as a pharmacist, I think that this is definitely not out of our scope. We're already testing patients for their blood glucose levels or their A1Cs, and even in some cases, you know, lipid panels. The HIV test that they are recommending being used is actually just a finger stick if, if you don't have access to, you know, a, a laboratory where they can do a blood draw. So I don't think that it is necessarily out of our scope. And I think that it would definitely open up, you know, more opportunities to work in prep into various pharmacy settings. Yeah. And I think that's a good call out that it is just a finger stick test that they are allowing for this because I know, for example, even at my pharmacy, we sell the, I believe it's a cheek swab test you can send in to like the mail order and have it done and have it tested that way. Is that another one that you've kind of seen as well? 
a lot of people are moving away from the oral swabs. It is still very much used. You know, that is actually the test that I used when I went to go get my test after my finger stick. And it's very, very user friendly. And I think that they're actually looking into a better version of it that we will probably be seeing out on the market before too long. But typically in in my practice, at least, we tend to definitely push for a blood draw just to reduce the risk of inaccuracies. So the finger stick uh, would definitely go along with that, that, you know, we always recommend follow-up counseling, of course, if you happen to get a positive result. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely gotta, especially if you have a positive result. So yeah. what are what are some of your other concerns for this? You mentioned that, yeah, you think it's a great idea overall, but you had some drawbacks, if you will, some concerns about it. What were some of those you were worried about? So the biggest thing that I actually questioned at first was what was our reimbursement going to be like? Because I'm not as familiar with California laws. And here in New York State, we are actually still working on obtaining provider status. So I'm not I wasn't as familiar with what the reimbursement was. But actually, if you look at the law that California just passed, they break it down really easily. So anybody can really read it and understand what's going on. And in the law that was passed, they said that it actually follows the Medi-Cal guidelines, which Medi-Cal, from what I understand, is California's Medicaid. And for pharmacists and this that qualify to prescribe this prep, they actually receive up to 85% of the physician reimbursement scale. So if a physician were to try to be reimbursed for the same services, and then a pharmacist were also to do a similar service, we would receive an 85% or more compensation for that, which I think is great. Yeah. And that's probably fair because if you look at what a physician gets paid their time and what we get paid in our time, that's probably about where where the pay rate would come in for it. So that would make sense to me too. And you mentioned that in New York, you guys are still working on provider status. We just recently got it here in Ohio so we can do more things like this. But it's kind of still in the works a little bit. This isn't full-blown. where They're just kind of letting us run with it. Previously, I had on Jennifer Adams from Idaho. And in states like Idaho, they can bill for all this and do everything. So they're a little more wide open. Now, getting insurances to buy in and realize some of the cost savings and benefits of it is a whole different ballgame. Exactly. As I'm sure you, you know over there in New York, which is funny because New York's a little conservative when it comes to some of their healthcare things compared to how they are in almost every other stance. So some of the things we mentioned about this, and you mentioned your concern with the the billing of it, do you think that possibly patients could pharmacy hop and still get their treatment for PrEP since they're only allowed to go up to 60 days for a prescription as needed? Do you think this might actually lead to like more pharmacy shopping since I'm assuming that PrEP wouldn't be tracked through the prescription drug monitoring programs? So that's a great question because I actually had similar concerns. I'm a little bit more liberal in thinking that anybody who wants to have PrEP, um, as long as they're following through with the recommended testing, I absolutely think that it should be available to anybody that wants it. With that being said, the law um, that was just passed in California actually uh, um, talks about this a little bit and gives you a little bit of a window into what to expect. So pharmacists are limited to prescribing a 60-day supply per patient every two years. So that means that a patient can't come to you for PrEP every single two or three months to get a refill um, without a prescription from a physician. They have to make sure that they are being followed up with in clinic or primary care's office, you know, some, some other avenue to obtain their PrEP. But as far as patients pharmacy hopping, the way that the law is written is that the PDMs and the insurance companies, they actually can deny reimbursement or can deny a claim if it is outside of the recommended prescribing timeframe. 
So say you have a patient that comes to you and you were to prescribe a 60-day supply. That will go through their insurance. They'll get their copay or whatever. And then maybe in two months, they go to another pharmacy. Well, I can guarantee you that those insurance companies are going to be like, hey, this patient already got a 60-day supply from a pharmacy, and it definitely hasn't been two years. We're not going to pay for this. They need to be seen by a physician instead. Yeah, I think that's a great call because just so every kind of level set with everybody here, the drug that we're basically talking about is Truvada, and that's the brand name of it. Uh, it's tr- tenofovir and emtricitabine. Not easy to say, so I'm just going to say Truvada to make it easy. I'm not paid by them at all, but it's a very expensive drug. Uh, the retail price I was just looking up today is around $2,100 at most pharmacies. We'll say 2000 for an even number. And so this isn't something that most people are going to be able to come out of come out of pocket for and pay for, like say a blood pressure med that might be 12 15 20 bucks a month. This is several thousand dollars every month. So you're looking about $24,000 a year in total cost which is why the insurances, as you said, are going to be really keeping a close eye on this to make sure that, hey, we're if we're doing this, we're doing it right and we're making sure to also do it in a cost-effective manner. So with these being over-the-counter and being prescribed by pharmacists to people who want or need them or meet the criteria, are you worried at all about this possibly breeding resistance? First, I'm just going to correct you for a minute. I don't think that this should be considered an over-the-counter product because it's not something that you necessarily can get without a prescription. It is just a a pharmacist-provided prescription. There are still, you know, indications that it has to be used for and, you know, it has to be used in a specific patient population. You still have to provide the counseling and go through all of that. It's not going to be as easily to, uh, as easy to obtain as something like Claritin D behind the counter where all you do is show your driver's license. And I think that's really important because that separates this new type of prescription product that we're going to start seeing in these places that have provider status and hopefully across the country once we all obtain that. And it'll be just like this new class of medication. With that being said, your question was, could this breed resistance? Yes and no. The only time that I would imagine that PrEP would be able to breed resistance is if the medication was used inappropriately. So the biggest thing about PrEP is that it has to be taken every single day. What we know right now is that PrEP is not going to work if it's taken sporadically. It has only been FDA approved as of this time for a once a day dosing. And we know that that dosing works based on the clinical trials that were used to approve this this drug. Now, there are some alternative dosing methods that are out there, such as PrEP on demand. Those studies are still ongoing to support the recommendation for those kind of things. But when it comes to resistance, in order for somebody that has HIV to develop resistance, they have to be inconsistent with their medications. So if I have a patient that comes to me and they're like, hey, this is what regimen I'm on, and I lost my insurance for 30 days, and I just stopped my medication once I ran out. I'm not really as concerned for resistance in that particular patient as I would be with somebody who comes to me and says, hey, this is my regimen, and I take it Mondays, Tuesdays, maybe sometimes Wednesdays, definitely never on Thursdays, not on Fridays, and maybe again on Saturdays. So it's really an inconsistent adherence that is going to promote that resistance. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess what I was thinking with that is when I see Medi-Cal involved, I'm assuming it's like Ohio where there's going to be either low or no copay. 
for the medication and thus it may make a little bit of a black market for people who can't get access to it as we mentioned these are a little bit costly and so that's what i was thinking but thank you for correcting me though a little bit on some of the terminology that's that's again why you're the specialist here so with some of this being a major cost issue what do you think is going to happen with the costs of this do you think that this is going to like drive it down because there's going to be more, more of it produced or you think it's going to drive it up because there's more demand for it any any predictions there at all So when PrEP was first started, when we first started having these programs where, you know, we were told, hey, there's this medication, we use it to treat HIV, but it's also been approved to prevent HIV. And the data is really there to support it. Like it's very effective if it's taken the appropriate way. They expected it to really skyrocket. There are approximately a million people that are at high risk for acquiring HIV every day, okay? But when this really took off, only a fraction of them actually could receive it. And that is what we assume to be because of the drug costs and access. So there is a shortage of HIV specialists. There is a shortage of HIV, people who are familiar with HIV drugs. And there is this underlying stigma that makes people afraid to prescribe PrEP. In my clinic, we are a part of a program where we are trying to educate more prescribers on how to work with these high-risk populations and how to actually prescribe PrEP at a primary care level because it's just that easy. And I'm hoping that more and more that we get word out about how simple it is to actually have somebody on PrEP, that more and more people are going to be willing to prescribe it. On the other side of that um, is the cost issue. So as you mentioned, you know, Truvada is a very expensive medication. However, with that in mind, the patent for Truvada is going to be expiring within the next year or two. So that means that there is going to be the potential for a generic prep on the market. The caveat to that is that in recent months, a new medication has been approved for prep as well. It is called Descovi. So I believe it was just approved in PrEP at the end of, or at the very beginning of this month. Now there is this big push to move people off of Truvada onto Descovi because Descovi is supposed to be a more clean version of Truvada. Supposed to have less side effects, less long-term issues with um, the medication. And I've been, you know, I look at the comments on, you know, posts about this whole California authorizing pharmacists to prescribe PrEP. And one of the constant comments is, how are we going to ensure that patients don't have impaired renal function and things like that? They're going to be on Truvada. So there is this big push to get people onto Descovi. And that opens a really big can of worms, as I'm sure that you can imagine. Yeah. Because... We have the potential for a generic prep coming to market. We have, a, we have this generic Truvada that is coming in you know, a year or two. But now we have this newer and better version called Descovi, or this supposed newer and better version called Descovi. And everybody wants that one. But the reality of it is, is that Truvada is actually a very safe drug. We have used it in HIV treatment for a long time. And as a pharmacist prescribing PrEP, based on the requirements of the law, you're only going to be providing a 60-day supply. These patients have to have follow-up in order to continue the medication. So they are going to have to have, you know, their renal function checked. It's not like it's just going to be out there. 
So I'm not really sure what this is going to do with the cost. Either we're going to see more people using Descovy and wanting to go without routes, or we're going to see a rise in the generic Truvada. I, I really don't know which way it's going to go. It's totally going to depend on the contracts that the insurances come up with. Yeah. And you know, the kind of the reason that I really thought about that was the California law actually calls out that the prep that must be covered by insurances and Medi-Cal, but it also must be in a singular pill form. In other words, a pharmacist couldn't go, in this case, a pharmacist couldn't go and prescribe tenofovir version, which is, I believe, now currently generic, and then the other drug, which is emtricitabine, separately in multiple pills or in multiple doses throughout the day. It had to be a once-a-day, one-pill-a-day dosing, which fits the Descovy and Truvada. Is that the way you read that, too? I have a little bit of a different interpretation, but I think it's more about the end of the, or the forms that have been approved for PrEP. So... In my mind, I was less thinking about individual drugs and I was more thinking about the future of PrEP, which is going to be in the form of a long-acting injectable, which will most likely be something that we could potentially offer as an alternative to PrEP. I don't think with the with the generic of Truvada coming along that it's we're going to see people dividing it up. So that is probably more of a point of clarification um, down the line through people in California specifically. You know, I had not heard of that long-acting injectable version. Is that kind of like a, to use a bad bad comparison, but Vivitrol for a drug addiction where you can just inject it, you don't have to worry about taking it every day? Does it work kind of like that? <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like, um, a depot shot. Like we have um, jokingly called PrEP the birth control for <laughs> HIV, and it's, it's almost exactly like that. So the long-acting PrEP is actually a drug called cabotegravir, and it's currently in clinical trials, and it is being researched across the country. They actually have two versions, I believe, of the trial going on. One version is in sub-Saharan Africa that is focusing on their high-risk population, which is females. And then in the Americas, we are focusing on the MSM or the men who have sex with men um, communities. So it's currently being studied. And from what I understand, it has pretty good data behind it. But jury is still out on when and how it will be approved. Yeah, that would be a almost like a completely revolutionary drug in, in the, the fight to help prevent and stop HIV from spreading. Because, man, if you could just come to a pharmacy once a month, make it a routine the first of every month, maybe that's bad due to volume, but 15th of every month, whatever it is, and just get that one shot, as opposed to have to get a, a medication you have to take every single day. And remember to take it and take it right. That That's a game changer in that one. I was unaware of that. That's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the other things I thought was interesting with this was, you sent, since we mentioned reimbursements, do you think that we're going to see some of the PBMs start playing games with this where they're directing people to certain pharmacies more, such as their specialty pharmacies, where they're mail ordering and just sending them prep routinely and then trying to follow up with the doctor to make sure that they're getting the, the monitoring done that they should be? Or do you see any, any possible games like that? Any kind of watch outs, if you will? So ironically that you mentioned that, it actually mentions something along the lines of this in the bill that was passed. So there is a section of the bill that talks about out-of-network pharmacies, and it essentially gives the PBMs the opportunity to deny claims from pharmacies that are not in their network. So absolutely, I think this could be a thing because I'm 
I'm seeing it in HIV care where, you know, my patients have to go through specific pharmacies in order to get their drug. Their insurance companies won't let them use their typical, you know, community pharmacy just to go in and pick up their medication at their convenience. So I definitely think that there is the potential for these PBMs to kind of you know, pick and choose who they want to provide this specific service for sure. Yeah. And just so the listeners all know, I've actually seen this on my end to some extent. I had a friend who I knew pretty well who was actually getting prep at my pharmacy and his PBM then forced him to go specialty through C, uh, CVS Caremark actually is when he forced him to go that way just to make sure that he got it through them. And I actually called another friend who happened to work for him and found out that what they were paying their specialty pharmacy or what they were paying his local uh, CVS pharmacy where he worked was drastically different than what they were paying where I currently work. As an example, one of the state of Ohio Medicaid programs after the drug cost only paid me, I think $4.85, $4.58. It was under $5 was my actual profit, if you will on the prescription, including my dispensing fee. And I was just like, wow, that, this is a, a medication that's around $2,000. And that's what a bad investment on my part to only make $4 on that for and then having to counsel the patient, talk to him and do everything. And I really thought that was where I liked the Medi-Cal part that you mentioned earlier, the 85% reimbursement for the testing and the prov- uh, providing the service of PrEP to the patient. Because I think that's a game changer because we're really going away for, to more of the fee-for-service rather than like fee-for-product type of type of environment where we've been in for pharmacy for a long time. Are you guys seeing current reimbursements like that where you work or are you even like following that where you work since you work in a little different setting? So I'm seeing a little bit of it here and there. As a pharmacist in my clinic, I develop a really good relationship with the pharmacists in the community. I know who keeps these medicines in stock and I know where to send people if they can't get their medication because, you know, maybe there's a supplier issue or a back order or something. When I have patients that call me and say, hey, my pharmacy can't get my my Big Turvy or my Truvada or whatever, it makes it really, really difficult for me to find a suitable alternative for them because their insurance companies oftentimes require them to go to a certain pharmacy. Yeah, that can, it, that it's can really be hard. Really yeah, and it impacts, re- it impacts adherent rates which is very, very important in HIV care as a whole, HIV care and for positive patients and negative patients that are on prevention. And it really impacts, you know, potentially the efficacy of these medications. Oh, yeah. And kind of to call out too, since we're talking about PrEP a lot, it's been in the news quite a bit this year. There was a big announcement from actually President Trump about how they were going to give, I forget the exact number, I think it was around a quarter million doses or a quarter million patients, I forget which one, uh, we're going to get access to PrEP through a donation through, uh, who's the manufacturer of that again? I'm drawing a total, bri- total blank. I believe it's uh, Gilead. Gilead, thank you. <laughs> That's why you're the specialist again. And I thought that was pretty interesting because when I was digging more and more into it, that actual donation is going to change in the middle of the donation where people who are going to start on Truvada, but once Descovy gets approved like it just did, they're going to phase those patients onto Descovy and then help kind of draw up their sales through that and get people used to taking it. So when this program runs out, then you have all these patients who are on Descovy, which has a much longer patent life since Truvada will then be, well, it's basically almost off patent now. It's only in 2020 or 2021, it's going off. So that that company through their donations can actually improve their sales. And again, as we talked about, cost is huge with these that's going to be a huge revenue stream for them when people are coming to, to or patients are coming to practitioners like you saying, Hey, I've been to Scovia. It works great. I want to stay on that. 
Have you seen that type of uh, behavior at all with patients where they're afraid to try something new with this and see where that may be a problem down the road? Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned this because I have had quite a few patients who, I don't know if, if you see it in Ohio, but there has been a lot of talk about these lawsuit commercials on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Ohio, we see right, all that stuff. We're a swing state. <laughs> yeah. So right now here, there's all of these ads about how the manufacturer of Truvada is in this giant lawsuit. And so a lot of my patients are coming to me and they're saying, hey, I want on that new form of Truvada. I want on the safe form of Truvada because this form of Truvada is, you know, not good for me. You know, maybe I can join in the lawsuit and all of this stuff because I was on Truvada and Truvada is bad. And I just feel like with the approval of Descovy for PrEP that it's really ironic that this is starting to come out into the media now. And I don't know if there's really anything to that, but it's just something that I find entertaining because, you know, we've been using Truvada for years and years and years and years. We are very vigilant about monitoring our patients for these adverse effects. And now they're coming to us and they're telling us that they want to be put on to, on this new form, this Descovy, which is, it's new. It, it's shiny. <laughs> um, it's being marketed as being better when the original drug, in my opinion, was just as good. It almost reminds me of, uh, you might remember some of this, you're a little bit younger than I am, but the move from Prilosec when it came out to Nexium, which is almost the same drug. It's omeprazole versus esomeprazole because it's a cleaner version. And how you just, as soon as Prilosec went generic, you started seeing more and more prescriptions for Nexium and then the coupon cards rolled out, just like you see with Truvada and stuff like that. So oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly what you said reminds me of that. The other funny thing, no. that, go go ahead. Now, I will admit that there are benefits to using Descovy over Truvada. Like the data definitely supports that it has less incidence of side effects, less incidence of adverse events. But when we're talking about perfectly healthy adults that are taking this, you know, Truvada versus Descovy, you're not really going to see a difference. It's going to work the same exact way. You're still going to monitor them the same way. Just Truvada is about ready to go off a patent. So it might be a little bit cheaper. Yeah. And to that point, when we're looking at patent laws here, so I did a little bit of digging Nothing too crazy. I'm not an awesome, amazing reporter who works for the New York Times or anything, but I do, the New York Times did produce a podcast called The Daily on this, and I believe it was June 6th or June 5th, and had one of the lead researchers on it. And as a lot of us know, a lot of the HIV funding funded studies originally were funded by the government, and that's how they kind of help support this and prop up this market to help keep people protected. And the actual cost, the manufacturing cost, what they've kind of mentioned in that podcast for Truvada was only $5 a bottle, which is a one month supply. So if it actually costs them $5 and they're selling it for 2000, that shows you a pretty good profit margin. I think even at the retail level, if you look at the the purchase price is around $1,800. So there's still, you know, $1,700 between where the pharmacy gets that and where the manufacturer is actually paying for it. And if the government funded a lot of the research, it makes you wonder, hmm, where's all that money going? Well, if you look at Gilead's profit margins as of June 30th, 2019, they actually made in that quarter, I think it was $3.8 billion. That's with a B. And that shows you just how much money they have invested in this. This is kind of one of their goose that laid the golden eggs for them. So I thought that was pretty interesting that you're already seeing people come and asking for that cleaner version. And I didn't even think about the lawsuit commercials that I have seen on TV, but it kind of does make you wonder who's pushing what and where to kind of drive these the switch over to Descovy, if you will. But um, at, least it's oh, yeah. a, at least it's a good product and helps you know protect people from HIV. I'll give it that much credit. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And like I said, you know, the medication has its time and place. And I will admit, you know, a lot of these newer HIV medications that are coming out, they already have the TAF and the TAF formulation in it, the cleaner version. And I'm very grateful with it because a lot of people who are actually positive um, have long-term complications from the disease itself that might make, you know, their organ systems act a little bit differently. With that being said, though, if you're talking about, you know, getting this medication out to people who need it, people in underserved populations, I definitely think that it doesn't matter which version that people get, as long as they, you know, know how to use it appropriately, and that they can actually afford to use it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good call out too. And there's tons of coupons and things online for those as well, which you can debate all the politics around those, but they do help quite a bit to get that price down to reasonable or even $0 for many people. There's also uh, Ryan White funds, various other miscellaneous fund funded programs, especially when it comes to HIV to help keep people protected. With that, one other thing I wanted to make sure I share with you, I actually thought it was pretty interesting. So again, working at this HIV special specialty type retail setting I work at, we actually saw where mail order was mailing people a lot of their medications just constantly. Is that something you see a lot of too where you work? So I get reports of it occasionally where people come in and it's mainly in my positive patients and they're like, hey, I have this stockpile of medicines <laughs> and my pharmacy keeps sending it to me, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because I like to make sure my patients don't run out of medications. But depending on the patient, it could be. <laughs> as far as PrEP is concerned, though, I haven't had any real issue with that because the guidelines for PrEP actually limit how many refills and how much supply you can give a patient before they're seen again for a repeat HIV test. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I actually saw it was just a regular HIV patient where he was mailed a tripla every 20 something days. And over the course of a few years, he had almost two years worth of it built up. And when I see things like this and see that the bill allows for the PBMs to kind of make some discretionary calls, if you will, I always get a little hesitant because I have that one patient in the back of my head who had almost $48,000 built up with the medication and was actually negative. He actually showed me his test results from his last doctor's visit. And I was, I was kind of amazed that he had gotten that much extra from the insurance company. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, and I, I had I referred him to some higher powers that be so he could uh, follow up with that. But uh, with that, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, especially when it comes to this bill for California prep and pep? Yeah, actually, there are a couple of other things that I wanted to mention just as a general thing about pharmacists and PrEP. I had the opportunity to actually look into pharmacy-run PrEP clinics, and I want to give a solid shout-out to a couple of different places. Elise Tong with Kelly Ross Pharmacy in Seattle, she actually came out and the group published um, a presentation at Croy in 2017 that actually showed that a pharmacist-run um, PrEP clinic was extremely beneficial. They had a retention of 75% of their patients and saw a great financial return in the first year, which I thought was fantastic because not only were they able to provide a service to patients that were in need, but they were also able to support their business as well. And then um, the following year in 2018, a group in Albuquerque, New Mexico actually published a very similar thing. So pharmacists are out there and they're definitely looking into this whole prep thing um, as a pharmacy service. And I have to say that it really is a pharmacy service because at the heart of it all is, you know, adherence. That is the only way that this medication is going to work. And who better to talk about medication adherence than the adherence specialist, which is us as pharmacists. 
So this is something that we're going to start seeing, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. This is a way that we can help prevent people from having this very serious, potentially deadly illness. And I think that there's a really great need for it in a variety of communities across the country. What I'm really impressed with is that you just named two cities that could not almost be more opposite from my understanding of them, Seattle and Albuquerque. Very different settings other than they're both west of the Mississippi. And you live in a state like New York, which has been greatly impacted by HIV over the years. And they are very conservative when it comes to things like this. I think that's pretty interesting how a lot of the stuff seems to originate in the West with the California bill. Is that the one we're kind of talking about here? But at the same time, Seattle's run something like this, or at least has one that has run like this. And so does Albuquerque. So I don't know what it is about the pharmacy, but it seems to roll from the West Coast to the East Coast. And pretty much that fashion and every everything from education level to programs like this, which is kind of funny. No, I definitely agree. I have an entire CDTM agreement that I'm sitting on and just waiting until I get provider status here in New York. So that way I can, you know, have my own pharmacist run prep clinic. So it's just, I think it's a matter of time. I really do. And I'm, I'm very positive about, you know, everybody in the country getting provider status and us being able to you know, change the face of pharmacy and really show people, you know, what we're capable of doing. Because as pharmacists, we're there on the front lines and we're talking to these people and, you know, we get to know them so well that, you know, maybe it is, it will be appropriate for us to be like, hey, you know, maybe you should um, consider going on this medication because, you know, I know that you just got out of this relationship and you're interested in exploring, you know, other opportunities for relationships in the future. And I think that you might be a good candidate for it. Yeah, and that's a really hard conversation to have, too, because you have to know the person so well to know their, in a case like this, know their orientation or know their risk factors. So that's a that's a pretty sensitive conversation and shows how well you know your patients. If you can have that conversation, that's awesome. So with that, kind of some questions I always ask every guest here. If you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? The biggest thing that I've noticed being a, I would say newer pharmacist, I wouldn't say a new, new pharmacist, but a newer pharmacist is the profession that I came into has drastically changed. So I started my pharmacy career, so to speak, when I was actually in high school. And I really loved the amount of respect and trust that my pharmacist at the pharmacy that I worked at had with with the patients. And I really liked experiencing that. And I think that as a profession, we still see that, but there's so much that we could do to make that even more, more robust, more widely spread. And I think that we should start working more together in order to, like I said, show people what we're capable of doing and the different things that we can offer as pharmacists. Yeah, I think that's a good, a good point overall. I think so many times in pharmacy, we get siloed. We have I swear to God, we have so many, we must have 300 different pharmacy organizations for every aspect of pharmacy. It'd be really nice if we could kind of spearhead together and get behind some of these, some of these unilaterally good things that will help advance, not just pharmacy, but patient care and reduce cost in the United States. So I agree with that. Oh yeah. It, I, th- there's a book called An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. I don't know if you've read it yet. I read it. In fact, I got the audiobook because I'm a I like to run a lot. I've listened to it twice. And one of my favorite parts is towards the end, she says pharmacists are the most underutilized member in the healthcare team. And every time she says that, I probably just holler out and give a fist pump when I'm out running. But I think you just hit the nail on the head with that, especially when it's something like a prep clinic. Another question, if there's one pharmacy law, federal or state, you could change, what would it be? 
That one's the easiest question. Provider status, 100%. You know, there are some pharmacists that actually I've heard are really hesitant about provider status because they're afraid of what um, additional responsibilities that they're going to have. But I think that as the only member of, in the healthcare team that cannot be recognized as a provider, that pharmacists should be fighting for this. We deserve to be reimbursed for the services that we provide. And we're the only healthcare professional that is not in some capacity reimbursed for the things that we do. And, you know, we're helping a lot of people. And while I love that we're so easy, easy to access, at the same time, I do believe that we deserve, uh, you know, some kudos for what we're doing, a little bit of, you know, a shout out, whatever, however you want to interpret that, because, you know, we deserve it just as much as everybody else does. And provider status is definitely the first step um, to get us there. Yeah, that's that's the elephant in the room here with a lot of people who come on this podcast. And I think people like you or people like me who are confident in our ability and know our scope, know our limits as well to what we can do. That's key is not only being able to do it and being allowed to do it, but knowing your limits of when not to do it and when to refer to somebody else. And, I, and again, I think our services are just they decrease costs and improve access. So I, I think there's no reason why why we shouldn't have that provider status, quite honestly. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, with all of these different pharmacy specialties coming out, you know, you have specialists like me who are in HIV. There are transplant specialists, infectious disease, oncology. There are a lot of us that function in these different specialty roles. And, you know, I really think that me being able to provide my clinical services in a clinic and, you know, people like you who work out in the community settings, we all should have the opportunity to be reimbursed in some capacity because, you know, we're starting to see a struggle with our profession. There are people who are going months and months and months without finding a job. And really the, the market is starting to slim down a lot. But being able to get into a position where we can be reimbursed for our services will allow us to function in new and innovative innovative roles that will help open that up a little bit and totally reinvent what we're doing as pharmacists. Oh yeah. I could not agree with that more. And you know, to your point, I literally had somebody the other day who was coming in from the doctor's office. It was like an urgent care or something like that stopped in my pharmacy. And then immediately upon dropping off their prescription had a seizure and I had to go handle it, take care of that. We called the ambulance. We, you know, did everything that we basically should to stabilize them in the process. And there were so many things and just in me touching that person and doing that, that were either crossing a line, going too far or putting myself at risk with no possible chance of doing anything to really help them. When, if you look at all the rules, it's almost like I really can't do anything to help you here. And you're having a seizure at my pharmacy counter. So I, I really feel like you hit the nail on the head with that. Exactly why we should, should be able to. So, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your professionalism and your knowledge when it comes to HIV. Again, Dr. Holly Murphy, if you guys have any questions, please reach out to you, reach out to her. Where can they reach out to you if they do have questions about HIV? Sure. I am on Facebook, so feel free to message me there. Or you can send me an email. My email address is hamilton at ecmc.edu. And I'm always available for questions or, you know, if it's about PrEP or HIV treatment, um, I'm definitely a resource for everybody um, who needs me. Awesome. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, again, if you guys like this podcast, please drop a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on that helps people find, find me and find this podcast on here. Thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.